Let us pray once again. Oh God, speak, we pray. Speak to us through your word tonight. Help us grasp the height of who you are and your glory and your beauty. As a church, Lord, speak to us. Help us to hear your voice and heed your word. Be with us. Be with my mouth right now, Lord, that you may be present in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A few weeks ago I was watching a video online about uh, Amish barn raising day. They call it that way. It's the day where Amish get together to... It's unbelievable if you watch it. In less than a day, without any modern technology, they are able to raise an entire huge barn, okay? With how? With the help of every member of the Amish community. And I wish we could hire some Amish to rebuild our sanctuary and probably save a lot of money, but this is definitely a witness to the community that while we're not Amish, that is a small way that the church, it illustrates for us and a picture for us of how the church can impact a broader culture, not by seeking to be relevant, but actually by standing out as very different, as countercultural, as something that is impossible individually, but it is possible corporately. That is what we want to look as we conclude today our journey through the letter of the Apostle Paul to Titus. And uh, next Sunday night, Lord willing, we go back to the Old Testament and we start a sermon series on the short book of Jonah. So tonight we finish Titus and we dealt, if you remember, in the past weeks in this letter with what is a healthy church. What is a healthy church? What is, in particular, church membership. We talk about the importance of regenerate church membership as the, as the ground for health in the church. And why is it important for the health of the church also to have things such as church discipline? Why God established elders, we look at chapter 1, to lead the church. We look at the qualifications of elders and we briefly mention also deacons and their qualifications. We also look at the danger of false doctrine. And uh, today we will complete with some of that reference. People whose lives are not in tune with the Word of God. And particularly people were trying to bring, bring back Christians to the Judaism and the Old Testament ceremonial law and all sort of things to be justified before God. And then we zoomed in last uh, few weeks into the conduct within the church. How are Christians to behave within the church? We look briefly at the workplace, how Christians are to be working their workplace. So we dealt with key pastoral matters here. We looked at specific age groups in the church and how Paul sends specific exhortations to each age groups. And uh, last time, two, two Sundays ago, we looked at uh, the basis of the conduct and the behavior of the Christian as the gospel, the grace of God, that now train those who have received the grace of God to live godly lives. And now in this third chapter, 
Paul turns to the world, the, the witness of Christians in the world, in society. Doing good not only to the church, but also in society. How Christians are to live out the grace of God toward authority, our responsibilities as citizens in a pagan society, which back then, very similar to the one that we have today. We, we mentioned in chapter 1 how Crete had a very bad reputation. Just so you know, in, it, in Italian, if you say someone is a Cretan, it's actually an insult. That, that, that there's a society that is pagan and has a bad reputation. And sadly, just like today, it was a society increasingly hostile to the gospel, increasingly hostile to, toward Christian. And so Titus, Paul and Titus wants to tell us that we are not the first one that had to go through this. That despite the darkness around us, there needs to be a considerate attitude among Christians in the way that they, be, they deal with unbelievers. People who are fallen and are in need of being pointed to Christ. So we must have a right attitude and is described for us. Giving this final warning also in verses 9 to 11 against false teachers. That we already explored in chapter 1. The graceless teachers. Now once again because of the context of Titus in Crete. He has to warn that again. So today we close this short pastoral letter of Apostle Paul to Titus. And what do we take away from this last chapter? Is that Christians of all people, because they experienced God's grace, once again, this is the theme of the letter, they are called to behave well even in the world. That is the way that we show grace also for outsiders, outsiders to the faith. Verses 1 to 2 of our text. That we show grace with, first of all, authorities. Verses 1 and 2 shows us that Christians are to behave well, obediently and respectfully and humbly in this fallen world. Verse 1 tells us, remind them, cause them to remember, which is a command. Paul is most, almost admonishing for something that they should already know. Something they heard before. Because, you see, as human, we, we tend to forget. And God has to remind us of these things that we already should know. And what is the thing that need to be reminded? All believers in the church, by, by the way, not just specific individual in the church, them as believers. Seven things to be reminded, and we're going to look through them here. The first one is, someone some, somehow hard to digest, but to be subject to rulers and authorities. Okay? What is in view here is to be a law-abiding towards civic authorities. Christians are to obey, to be obedient, not just to the walls of the church, but even in the way they deal in society. And as we engage with our culture, we think this idea foreign to our America. But if you think the founding fathers, there's George Washington, a founding father, he says, The very idea of the power and right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. Just like children need to be reminded to obey their parents because they're prone to forget. So Christians can easily forget or overlook this command. Now, I'm not suggesting that the government is our parent, okay? That's what other people want to tell us, socialists. But we, do, we must, however, remember as Christians the importance to remain a lawful, abiding citizen. Now let, let me say first what this verse does not mean, okay? Okay? Because I know here in this 
words in Romans 13 or elsewhere in the New Testament. Christians, some Christians have made too much of such verses. Like, you think about the self-compromised, self-progressing Christians during Nazism, okay? They were using the same arguments to actually have to obey Nazism out of Romans 13 and even commandment of scripture right here that says that you must be submissive to authority. This verse does not mean that now you criticize a certain politician or defend a, a politician, it becomes a sin. That, that is what you know, happens in communist societies. People go to jail if, if they do that. And, and we are coming now in North America in a cancel culture that is cutting people down because of that. Instead, America is supposed to promote freedom of speech, but uh, notice they are taking it away piece by piece. And that's something, that's something that we don't just submit. That's something we should speak up against, okay? Therefore, this command here, be subject to rulers and authority, does not mean an unconditional submission to the government, especially when the government is telling you to do something that conflicts with God's word. And I want to give you some examples in scriptures here. And I feel like this is an important clarification here. Think about the midwives, the Hebrew midwives in Egypt. Pharaoh had ordered them to uh, kill the baby if the baby was male. And yet the midwives are, the Hebrew midwives are transgressing a commandment from the Pharaoh, from the government. Because they fear God, Exodus says. You think about Daniel and his friends, they do not bow down. To this royal decree. This was a government decree that said they needed to bow down to the golden statues. But for issue of conscience, they say, no, we're not going to do that. Then you have in the New Testament, John the Baptist, who, who comes before this King Herod. And yet he has the courage to tell him, you are sinning. He actually wants this secular ruler to abide to the commandment. That says, you shall not take your brother's wife. And for that, by the way, he's brought to jail and ultimately goes to martyrdom. And even if you look at the early Christians, early Christianity was required by the Roman emperor to burn incense to emperors. And by burning incense, I mean that you had to essentially worship the emperor. And early Christians says, no, we're not going to do that. This is against... Only God is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. And even, you know, our country was founded out of an act of civic disobedience. So, I'm just saying that this commandment here in verse 1 cannot be twisted here. We cannot pretend, particularly in our context right now, that 2020 didn't happen. Where you have shaky situations in government. COVID, absurd restrictions on churches, the rise of cancel culture, Christians who are getting Cancel from YouTube out of nothing. Bank accounts that get canceled just because they have an opinion different than yours. The, the, the situation with, you know, Chinese invasion and, you know, something that would have horrified, you know, people who have lived in this country in the past, the, the rise of socialism and after the pandemic. I mean, we've seen a situation where we are called, actually. There are times where we are called to disobey the government when it conflicts with God's words. I mean, we saw pastors go to jail over COVID. Christians and even conservative non-Christians being canceled all over social media. Increasing government control. Right? All of these things are showing us that this verse does not mean an unconditional obedience. What this verse is after 
subject to rules and authority is our attitude more than an absolute principle. Let me explain that. That Christians don't start revolutions, which is exactly what some people, particularly in the left right now in this country, want to do. They want to really make it into a, uh, some sort of revolution. Don't, we, don't, we don't give a form of politicized faith, which I feel is the danger of Christless conservatism, where there are conservatives that now are okay with certain stands like homosexuality. While Christians should be involved in society, we just don't follow misguided efforts to change culture externally, neglecting the call to bring sinful people to salvation through Christ. And that is the way that some good Christians are going about this, wanting to be the center of power, or Christians should be political ideologues offering a plan to overturn governments. Christians are not friends above the law. That is what this commandment is after. Even, if, even in our defiance of unjust things, or tyranny, we still have to have an overall submissive attitude of faithful, law-abiding citizens. That is what this, this, this text is saying, that you pay those taxes when they are right, you respect speed limits. This is how Christians have to deal with the world outside the realm of the church. And I know in this day and age, it's particularly countercultural. We tend to forget submissions to authority, however, it remains a general commandment from Scripture. And it does not depend, by the way, on whether it is easy to obey these people. He's talking to people that they're facing, you know, the Roman Empire. Whether they're moral or immoral. It's like trying to obey only to a faultless government or one with whom I agree with every issue. When you reject authorities, you reject God's order. And through that, we must be careful. Christians are also, let's look at the second here in the list. Speak evil. Be ready for good, every good work. What does that mean? We saw this already in this letter throughout. Is the mantra of Paul to Titus. That you are prepared and willing, eager to serve others. You are ready at a word to do every good work. You give the helping hand. Not just good, and, but also honest and honorable good works. Which, as we saw last week, or weeks ago actually... It refers to be honorable in the way you carry your employment. And then verse 2 says to speak evil of no one. Okay? From these words we get the word blaspheme. When you are uh, slandering or speaking in a disrespectful way, demeaning, denigrating and maligning someone. To the intent purpose to discredit them or damage them and their reputation. As a talebearer or a quarrelsome person. This is very dangerous to have multiple gossipers, friends, in the church. It's like a gangrene that quenched the Holy Spirit and the unity in the church. Now, this does not mean, as we saw weeks ago, that if, there, if there's a place for speaking up about someone's sin in order to bring it to light, then yes, we must address that. But that is a different thing than just willingly going after people's back and, and maligning them and their character uh, for pleasure personal pleasure instead paul commands us to be peaceable which means you avoid fights you seek peace with everyone and you are also verse 2 continues gentle considerate kind conciliatory in your tones you show perfect courtesy toward all people that is what is in view here and also humility Humility means, by the way, not to just denigrate yourself to the bottom, but to have an honest opinion about yourself. 
not above or below. In fact, it, it is this. Just Philippians 2.3 says, In humility, count others more significant than ourselves. That's how it shows up. Not just humility, but all humility. All of humility, all the time. And if that was not enough, it says, to all men. Even the proud, even the hard to deal with. I mean, this is a quite striking advice from Paul to Titus. This is what should characterize every believer in the church. And so, let me ask you, does that describe you? Always seeking to be peaceable, humble with people at church, let alone with people outside the church, gentle. Paul here sets a high standard before us. I realize it. Yes, there are times where we fail to meet such standard. However, it is important that this be the norm of what people around us can testify about us. Now, let's look the following verses, verse 3 to 8. And there you have the insiders. We looked at outsiders and the way we, we behave with outsiders to the faith. And now look at the insiders, the believers, which means we remember how God's grace, love, and mercy transforms us. And that remembrance of where we come from should lead believers to do good in this fallen world. In, in other words, in order to avoid becoming proud, acting in self-righteousness, when facing sins from others, especially unbelievers in this fallen world, Paul reminds the believers in verse 3 of something. That we ourselves were once something. We were in the same boat of those people out there. That tells you there's... There's a, first of all, a before and an after in everyone's Christian conversion. There are certain things that should not characterize the true believer anymore. And they're listed there for you. Those are things that an unbeliever does all the time. Foolish, disobedience, deceived, full of lust of pleasure, malice, envy, hating one another. That is what you were before you came to Christ. Just like them who right now are behaving badly out there. And that foolishness, disobedience, and deceived or slavery to lusts and pleasures, malice, envy. It's almost as we saw this morning. However, here is the reverse. is the daily bread of these people. That these things are characterizing their entire lifestyle. Okay, And they were, we were once hating one another. All these things are supposed to help you as you deal with fallen, broken sinners out there to have patience, to have compassion when you deal with people in this world. The reason why we can learn to be patient with others is reminding yourself of how patient God was with you. That's what God has done. He was patient with you with your sin. And that share, the grace that He has shared with you, must be now shared among us on the basis of this awareness toward others in the church, toward believers, that we are not graceless toward each other, that we give grace just as we received grace, but even outsiders. As C.S. Lewis says once, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. That is the motivation. That you remember who you were before you met Christ. I was a whole different person. You would not have wanted to be around me when I was an unbeliever, I'm telling you. A life of pleasure, giving in to every sensual desires and slavery, addiction. 
And sometimes we look at people out there and say, so, oh, uh, uh, we wonder how can some people be so wicked and hard to love. But remember that if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go you. You will be the same. And if you're a true believer, Christ freed you from this control of sin. In fact, you picture the person that is hard to love and it's exactly you will be if you, if you did not have Christ. And then you will be able to put up with him or her with an increased awareness. Did you realize you have a new man, a new woman in you, and there you have the ability to love even the unlovable. Let's continue in verse 4 and 5. But, here's the beautiful but of the gospel. In opposition to what we were, full of those sins. But here's where our conversion fits in. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. That is the wonder of the gospel. That's what really brought us to repentance. The kindness of God toward us. The undeserved grace that appeared. Notice what verse 4 says. Not according to our righteousness. Not according to our good works. Not, not because we were acting like good Samaritans or because we went to church all of our lives. No, only because of God's mercy. He had pity on our miserable, sinful, grumpy state. But how can God be merciful and yet still be just, we wonder, at the same time? And the reason is because of the favorable and accepted sacrifice of another on your behalf. The cross of Christ. He saved us, our text says. He delivered you, a sinner, a wretched sinner, from the eternal perdition that you deserve because of your sin. And because of the Holy Spirit, look at that. Through regeneration, you are now born again by the same grace. And verse 6 says that the Spirit now has been poured out in the believer, not just a little bit, but richly, without measure. You know what that means? That means that joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control shall now flow from you toward others. No matter who they be or how bad they may act toward you. And how is that possible? Through Jesus Christ. That Jesus was the channel. Through the Holy Spirit has God brought salvation. You see the Trinity there. The evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds here from the Father and the Son. And we have a perfect Trinitarian harmony granting us the ability to change and to be a new man and to behave even with those who are hard to love in a lovable way. Verse 7. Now that we have been justified by grace, we become heirs. I mean, what an undeserved privilege that you receive salvation as your possession, that you are being the beneficiary of this salvation and it leads to now a hope of eternal life. We saw two weeks ago, you, you, you look back at the cross and now you look forward to the hope of uh, coming glory, right? After all, we haven't received yet the fullness of what our salvation entails. And so we expectantly wait for it in heaven. So you see from all this that you are not saved because you were better than others. And in fact, if that's still your thinking, I wonder if you are even saved at all. Friend, you are saved because you were as bad and as guilty before a holy and just and perfect God as others. And that there was no righteousness in you. 
All your good works were filthy rags before Him. Yet God had mercy on you. He loved you despite your sin. That Jesus died for you and now the Spirit has come into your life to give you life. And you inherit an eternal life. And it's all this for free. An undeserved gift. And if you have not experienced God's love, friend, the gospel call comes to you tonight as well. That you experience the love of Christ. That he, he becomes your intimate friend. Not just a concept in your head. Not because of intrinsic goodness within you. Because all we got is filthiness in us. But it's still because of that same grace of God. And look at verse 8 of our text. Here comes one of Paul's famous five faithful or trustworthy sayings. This is a way that Paul wants to bring everything home here in chapter 3 and end this letter. It's like saying, mark my words or listen up, which is typical of his pastoral letters we find in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a faithful saying. And in this case, Paul is concluding his letter and, and he's saying, this is something we must affirm constantly with a special emphasis. In other words, Titus as a pastor is to teach all this without compromise. And here the focus of the saying is verses 4 to 7 that we just saw. However, the second part of this verse is the focus. Not only of this chapter, but we saw in previous weeks, the entire letter. We could summarize the entire letter of Titus in verse 8. Summarizing the entire book. In the fact that we have been saved by grace, yes. But now what? So that, as you insist on those truths, then those who have believed in God may be careful to maintain good works, to devote themselves to good works. In other words, you consider with thoughtfulness, as you believed in God, you consider with thoughtfulness the importance to maintain good works, which implies that there is a risk for the Christians to be distracted from doing what is expected of them. It's like you, you come to church, you just listen to things. Everyone else is doing the work at church. Because that's what you're used to do. Instead, you are to be careful to maintain good works. To devote yourself, to busy yourself with good works. That are profitable to men. Which means you have, you're more blessed to give than to receive. So, the bottom line of Titus, entire letter. Is for the church to put that grace received from God to work. That true love for God is shown by true love for God's people. And uh, that's how you show that you truly believe in God. You serve others in the church. And that becomes actually kind of a requirement for every true believer. Everyone in the church should do this his or her, her own part. And my prayer is that we will be indeed a fruitful church. That we don't just sit back and expecting to receive things as we come to church. But we get out of our way to be a source of blessing to others. And that without complaining as well. That we help each other identify what good works each person can do. Going back to the metaphor of the body. Just because I'm a hand and I don't, I don't go to the feet and say, I pretend that the feet does what the hand does. No, everyone in the church has different spiritual gifts. Different things that he or she can bless the church with. But again, we must not forget and become complacent or passive. Or even do things grudgingly. In that case, that is no longer good work. That we be on guard against certain carelessness or lack of zeal. And we don't become deadly. And not living up the calling that we have received from God. 
call it spiritual laziness or inertia, but God wants it gone from us. It's just like, just like He wants other sins to be gone from our life. He wants us to be active in these doing good works. We must realize that to know how to do good and yet not to do it is still a sin in the eyes of God. Now that doesn't mean, however, that we trick people to do something out of guilt. Now, we talked about grace and the gratuitous grace and the mercy of God remains the fuel that if it's almost as placing it this way to the person, if only you would realize what blessing and what benefits of doing good toward others, the blessing that comes from it, and therefore you, you're actually calling others to, to do those works. And now, now let's finish with verses 9 and 11, going back to the false teachers. The great, how to have grace with troublemakers. There's a limit, friends, to doing good. Okay? When someone causes division in the church, he must be removed. Verse 9 says, On the opposite side, while good works are to be pursued, something else is to be avoided. Paul, uh, Paul is here going back to these opponents of grace, which are doing the opposite of what Titus is tomorrow. They are foolish in their disputes. They're contentious. They're striving about the law, controversies and debates and arguments about, again, Judaism, okay? This is the context of these false teachers we already saw in chapters 1 and 2, Judaizers, which wanted to bring Christians back to Judaism away from the grace of God. That now you have to be circumcised in order to be saved or other things of the like. But all those things, Paul says, are profitable. Profit useless, unprofitable, pointless, empty. The problem with all these speculations is that they bring nothing spiritual, profitable, worthy. And verse 10, he pushes his point even a bit further. He says, reject them. Reject doesn't mean here, just I disagree with you. But it is, there's a sense here in which church discipline is in view, that you remove that person from the fellowship in the church and, and from your life as well, yes. According to the steps outlined for us in Matthew 18, 15 to 18, or 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, 15, that you have nothing more to do with such a person, a divisive man. Now from this word we get the word heretic actually. It's talking about someone who promotes false doctrines and factions, sectarianism, intentionally stirring up division in the church with his party and factitious spirit. Such person, Paul tells us, must be warned once or twice. But there is a point where you must let them go. Verse 11 says that the spiritual condition of that divisive man is to be warped, to be perverted or distorted. It literally means that this person is turned upside down in his mind. He is turned aside from what is properly true and moral. And he's now corrupted. He's been twisted by sin. He's out of line in the sense of having his sense of values Completely overthrown. There were weeks ago I was uh, down in Nashville. And I went to this Christian bookstore. And I was just with, looking to books. And there was this guy with his phone number. He, he was talking at the phone. And he was having troubles with his church. And, and he was uh, actually, I was overhearing the conversation. But apparently he was saying I, that he denied the existence of a worship service in the Bible. How absurd. And he was using this context talking with this weak Christian, I think, on the other side of the phone line, to say that now we have to overthrow the church, overthrow this and that. And it's like, 
and he was so leading astray this immature hearer in the phone call with his absurd statement to actually create division in the church. Now, I pray that in this church we will find nothing of the like, that as soon as we see it, we, we, we identify it and, and, and we must act. This, this text is, is clear. That person is sinning. The reason he's warped is because of his sin. He's going on into the sin. It's almost as he sins and he knows it. He's self-condemned. He doesn't even need to be condemned by the church because he's already condemned by his own spreading lies and judging others not according to the truth. This sin proves that he is wrong. So, Nehemiah Rogers says, There's no scrab or each more dangerous than the ambition of sex and new opinions. That we should be all suspicious of certain categories of professing Christians. When they're always involved in disputes over certain secondary issues. Always measuring on the minors. Always pointing the finger at whoever they don't agree with. Placing people against each other in the church. And they're dealing with these secondary topics. Let me, let me give you some example. You, you can open YouTube and you see all these discernment YouTube channels focus on speculation around Jewish feasts or aspects of the ceremonial law while at the same time they condemn everyone else if they don't see eye to eye with them in these secondary matters. And so you must ask yourself will my devotion to Christ increase or would I be distracted from this thing and thinking and talking about this topic? Remember the, the, the unity of the church is under threat by a guy like that. And I venture to say that this is actually a kind of a demonic attack on the church. There are times in my life I, fa I had to face people like this sort. And I thought, if only I would do this or be better at this. After all, we are called to, go to do good to all men, right? That's what we saw in the first part. But here these verses is interesting right after shows us that we're also called not to throw pearls before swines. So I, I should have excused myself in that situation and move on. It comes to a time where, we, where a divisive person in the church must be removed. You isolate them as the only way to help them to realize the damage that they're causing by their mind games being trapped in their mind and causing division. So how do we conclude this letter? We finish here the letter of the Apostle Paul to Titus. We've been through Titus mainly because of the vital information that is contained here about church leadership. We looked how... It looks to have a healthy church. And we talk about leadership, the church order, and discipleship. And overall, Titus teaches us that Paul's stress on justification by faith alone is absolutely true. That elsewhere in the Bible, it talks absolute truth. And we must uphold justification by faith alone till we die. Absolutely. That is the heart of the gospel. But it should not be taken to mean that now good works are unimportant. Or optional in the Christian life. That the person who actually saved is now staying back and remains as he is. Titus makes us consider how we stir up one another in love and good works in the church. That is what Jesus says in John 14, 15. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And so, how does the letter end in verses 12 to 13? He is... Uh, Mentioning his farewell to Titus, and he mentions some gospel partners, Tychicus and Apollos, which possibly will take over Titus' work so that Titus can move on to another ministry. Yes, 
Why not? I mean, church multiplication, nothing wrong if it's done in an unhealthy and biblical way. But he gives a one final plea to learn, once again, to maintain good works. And to be free, fruitful and meet urgent needs, verse 14. As we keep our antenna up on these needs and communicate immediately those needs to deacons and elders in our church. And then in verse 15, he sends his goodbye. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So what do we make of chapter 3? How are Christians to behave in society? We are to behave in society in an exemplary way. With this thought, we conclude our journey through Titus. Come back next Sunday evening as we will begin the book of Jonah. Let us pray.